Hello, and welcome to Oppo Research, the podcast about the sins and scandals of your least favorite politicians, brought to you by Discourse Blog. I'm your host, Jack Merkinson, and I am thrilled to be going on this journey with you. So the way that this podcast is going to work is pretty simple. Each episode, we're going to bring on a guest who will talk with me about the life and evil deeds of a different politician. And it's not just going to be like MAGA nightmares who popped up three seconds ago. We're going to talk about people from across the political spectrum and people who've been making things worse across a wide range of the tawdry, tawdry history of this country. But you do not have to worry. This isn't homework. There's no test at the end. The point is just to do what we here at Discourse Blog love to do, which is have a good time talking about how horrible the people who run the world are. And the first person we're talking about is indeed incredibly horrible. But I think you're going to have fun hearing about how horrible he is. I am talking about none other than Meatball Ron himself, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, one of the top right-wing nutjob freaks in America, and the most entertaining presidential flop that I have seen in a very long time. And I'm also really excited because we have the perfect person on to talk about Ron DeSantis with me. Samantha Schuyler, a Florida native and my brilliant colleague at The Nation, where she is the research director. We had a really fun time diving into all of the weird and gross things that Ron DeSantis has been up to throughout his very bad life. And I think you're going to enjoy going down this path with us. Uh, so, without further ado, this is Oppo Research, Ron DeSantis, with me and Samantha Schuyler. Sam, hello. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Jack. It's nice to see you. It is great to see you, too. And before we get started, can you talk about why... Ron DeSantis interests you so much. Yeah, I guess aside from him being truly like a stone cold freak, I am from Florida. I went to school in Florida. I have a lot of friends still living there. It's a state that's very close to my heart. And so everything that he's currently doing to the state, I've been watching it and feeling it very personally. And the only way that I can control that is by learning a lot of things about this freaky freak man. Well, I'm very glad that you have learned so much because it means that we're going to have a lot to discuss. One of the things that I want to get into down the line is why politicians from Florida hugely fail to translate outside of Florida. Like, what is it about the weird-ass energy in Florida that creates people like DeSantis? No offense to, to you and everyone else from Florida, obviously. It's absolutely true. Like, the scorching light of going on the national stage is a little too much for a lot of Florida politicians. Yeah, including poor Meatball Ron. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, we're going to talk about the early Ron DeSantis right after this little break. Stay with us. Thank you for listening to Oppo Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. Discourse Blog is a worker-owned leftist politics and culture site. We write about uprisings, the woeful democratic establishment, the conservative death cult, bad journalism, bad bosses, workers, online nonsense, and naturally, the discourse. 
For a limited time, Oppo Research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com slash research. Subscribing gives you access to all our posts, and you can hear new episodes of Oppo Research a week early with no ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com slash research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Oppo Research. Bye. And we are back. So, Sam, can you talk about where Ron DeSantis is from, what his deal is when he's a kid, and what he gets up to? So, Ron DeSantis was born in Dunedin, Florida, which is actually very close to where I grew up. The hospital where I was born is like three miles or so from his childhood home. And he tries to paint it as this blue-collar city which is, I don't think, very accurate. I even asked my dad, because my parents moved to the area, Pinellas County, in the 90s, um, which would be around the time that he was like a tween and a teen. And I don't think in any stretch of the imagination you could call it a blue-collar town. It was very firmly middle class. It has since then grown and become a pretty expensive area to live in. I don't know why nobody has really called his bluff on that. And I think that he knows that if people dig too far into his past, it doesn't measure up because he like deflects and says like, yeah, I was raised in like the Tampa area, but like my heart is in these really important swing states, Pennsylvania and Ohio, which is where his parents are from. He just tries to veer around it. It's interesting that you say that because one of or a couple of the things that I think really come through about DeSantis now are his obvious attempts to revamp his backstory and also like how bad he is at doing that. So the fact that he's doing that about literally his entire life from the moment he was born says a lot about his whole thing to me. Yeah, it's pretty funny. He just has to fabricate a lot of things to make his whole deal coherent. I was talking about this with someone I know, and we agreed that he's just this empty vessel and he's ready to be anything or anyone that'll get him power or get him ahead. And he's kind of indifferent about what he says or who he becomes, which comes across. It's very obvious that there's nothing behind his eyes. But like if you compare him to other conservatives who have been on the front lines of the culture war, like Pat Buchanan or George Wallace, they had like a very sentimental attachment to where they grew up. And that is just not the case with Ron DeSantis. He glosses over it, except for the baseball stuff. He mm. really hits that hard. Okay, so let's talk about the baseball stuff then. When does he get into baseball and why is the baseball stuff important for our understanding of Ron DeSantis? Yeah, I'm not sure when he gets into it, but he is in the local Little League throughout middle school. And his big claim to fame is that his team made it to the Little League World Series. He brings this up whenever possible. Uh, when I was 12, uh, my Little League team out of Dunedin, Florida, made it all the way to the Little League World Series in Williamsport, yes. Pennsylvania. Okay. So, you know, back then there were four American teams. So we had to win local, sectional, uh, state, southern region with 13 states, uh, and then go to the, the World Series. In fact, his team auctioned signed Ron DeSantis baseball cards which you can still find on eBay. Oh my and it's, God. It's very embarrassing. And, like, and like of him as a yeah. like middle schooler? 
No, as an adult. Oh, as an adult. As okay. a full-grown adult. Oh, like so even so, like even worse. Even worse. Absolutely, yeah. even worse. So they're not like they're not like vintage. They're like Ron DeSantis now hitting yes. a baseball. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's very sad. Yes, actually, they loved the idea so much that they created another set of baseball cards, but this time it was like military baseball cards. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> And so instead of him like hitting a ball, he is wearing his uniform from when he was in Iraq. And not only that, but apparently, and I don't know anything about baseball cards, apparently some baseball cards come with a relic of some kind. And the relic that they chose was a piece of Ron DeSantis's boot from when he was in Iraq. He like found extra boots in his closet and he was like oh we'll just we'll add this to the treasure pile and so at least 10 people have pieces of Ron DeSantis's boot that they can pass down I am just closing my eyes in speechless despair yeah it's very dark it's great to know that he's still dining out on his little league success this many years later from all accounts he was a pretty good player but the thing is when he talks about it it's nothing that he talks about with like emotion like he talks about it in his autobiography in terms of like how it reflects on him as a politician not that he loves baseball and like the sport makes him happy but that it showed that he was a go-getter and a leader and worked hard and that's just so sad. But again, it feels very sort of apropos about his utter lack of an ability to like perform the role of human person. He can perform, but just not convincingly. And that's what the people want. The people want like to feel persuaded that this person is not an alien. And, and it's also weird because like, he gives off like no jock energy to me. Like if you looked at him, I would never be like, oh yeah, that guy was a star baseball player, but he was. Yeah, he was. He has like a Poindexter voice. So anytime he opens his mouth, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> it sounds like he's saying, um, Bell. That <laughs> just doesn't fit with like a baseball, captain of the baseball team vibe. Yeah. How do we end up 32 trillion in debt? Uh, and a lot of it was how they handled the response to COVID. I mean, they did trillions and trillions of dollars, very little to show for it. The, the response was poor, but what the, what the Congress has done, they basically locked in that level of spending. That's a good Ron DeSantis. You've been practicing that one. I've been truly watching too many interviews with him. And you know what I've noticed? He develops beads of sweat on his top lip. Every single time he's like working in overdrive, half moons in the palms of his hands, like real tense. So he takes baseball all the way to Yale when there was just this New York Times article about how he threw himself into the Yale and then Harvard sort of atmosphere I should say at this point, my dark, shameful secret, I also went to Yale, not at the same time as Ron DeSantis, but I carry that scarlet letter around with me as well. So here's some of what I read about his time at Yale. First of all, he was the captain of the baseball team when he was a senior, which the New York Times in this big story has this very funny section. This is what they write. As a senior, Mr. DeSantis was elected captain, which his closest Yale friends have sometimes presented as a testament to his leadership qualities. According to other former teammates, however, there were no other contenders. The team had few seniors that year, and Mr. DeSantis was a starting outfielder. 
He got it by default, essentially. That's so funny. Um, he was also in one of Yale's secret societies, of which there are many. I have to confess that I forgot that the one that he was in existed. It's called St. Elmo's, like St. Elmo's Fire. That's um, all I know, yeah. Yeah, I, there's a lot of dumb shit that happens at Yale. He was also in what I would describe as Yale's skeeziest fraternity, called Deke, D-K-E, which, among other people, Brett Kavanaugh was also a member of. Right after I graduated from Yale, I think the year after, Deke got shut down for a number of years because its members went around the campus chanting, no means yes, yes means anal. This is the type of people that Ron DeSantis was consorting with. But so he passes through Yale. I think he graduates pretty nicely from Yale. I think one of his teachers was interviewed in a prior story and said he had like a perfect GPA. It's definitely better than I did at Yale. I'll just say that. I think to your credit. Thank you. I agree with that. So where does he go next after that? Then he goes and he teaches in northern Georgia for a year. This is where the photo that Trump posted with the high school girls comes from. You mean the rumors that he's some kind of pedophile? Yeah. But there's no truth to those rumors that we know of, or is there? I don't know. It's all alleged. And yeah. I just don't, like, he's just not a sleaze. He's just so desexualized. And, like, he, he's many terrible things, but I can only see him being extraordinarily awkward. Watch me get proven wrong. If we record this and, like, suddenly some evidence comes in, we'll come back and uh, I will eat crow. Absolutely. Yeah. Full, the full Wendy Williams. And so then he goes to Harvard Law and then he enters the military. He goes to the Navy. He's a JAG. Judge Advocate General, just like uh, the TV show. And a few good men. And a few good <laughs> men. Yes, true. And so what does he do in the military? He's a prosecutor. He does a lot of different things. There's been a lot more reporting about his time in the military. There's like a good Tampa Bay Times piece about it. He uses it to bolster his points. Like when I was in the military, we did this. And he uses a lot of military terminology. He just drops it when he wants to sound powerful. He was at one point at Guantanamo. There was an investigation that found he had been witness to force feedings. And he actually talked about this with CBS Miami back in 2018. And you actually had three detainees that committed suicide with hunger strikes. So everything at that time was legal in nature one way or another. So the commander wants to know, well, how do I combat this? So one of the jobs of the legal advisor would be like, hey, you actually can force feed. Here's what you can do. Here's kind of the rules of that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Reporting has alleged he was an enthusiastic witness. Isn't that correct? If I recall, it was sort of like he and other officials, the person who was being force-fed, being tortured, had said that he noticed that they were smiling. And this is one of those former Guantanamo detainees, Mansoor Adaifi, talking about DeSantis with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! earlier this year. So during the feeding, a group of officers arrived with the uh, interpreters, with the interrogators, campus staff, medical staff. They were behind the fence. And I saw one of them was uh, Ron DeSantos in a, a military uniform. And he was, while, while I was screaming, yelling, because I couldn't breathe of the inshore, and was like, I was bleeding because they really insert a thick tube through my nose. 
So I was like calling them, asking, and they, he was actually laughing, looking at, at the other officers and smiling. Hi, this is Jack just cutting in from the Oppo Research Future Desk News Bureau. Since we recorded this episode, the New York Times released a report about DeSantis's time at Guantanamo Bay in which it said it had interviewed a lot of people who had been there and looked at records and came to the conclusion that it could not find any evidence to corroborate the allegations made by these prisoners at Guantanamo about DeSantis. I think that's important to note. We're keeping the part about Guantanamo in here because the fact that he was there is noteworthy in and of itself and because he has, as we play in the episode, talked about force feeding at Guantanamo. But this new reporting, as I say, has concluded that the evidence to back up these specific claims about him is not there. Okay, let's get back to the episode. If you're in Gitmo, like in the role that Ron DeSantis was in, you are committing evil. Yeah. There was like a, a colleague of his who basically said, I was there when Ron DeSantis was there. If you come out of working there without saying, like, this needs to end immediately, like, this is a human rights violation, you're psycho. And I I just don't see Ron DeSantis doing that. After that, he moves into politics after he gets out of um, the military stuff. He gets into the House in 2012, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Is that campaign notable? Or is he just like sort of dropped into a safe Republican seat? I'm fairly certain it's a safe Republican seat. It comprises the suburbs of Jacksonville down through St. Augustine, a little further south of that. It's changed since then. He was living in Jacksonville at the time. Jacksonville has a naval base. So that's where he first went when he started in the Navy. And then he went back there. And it's also where he met his wife. We just have to note that they got married at Disney World, which is a fact that I never get tired of. And he put his foot down like Disney World was fine, but no Donald Duck, no dressed up characters. (laughs) I did not know that. He was like, we're not doing that. But Disney was fine. My wife and I, we got married at Disney World and it was not my idea. And she she came to me one day and she said, what about this? Because her parents, her family loved Disney, right? Growing up. And I'm like, look, if that's what you want, like, you know, it's your day. Like I'm (laughs) along for the ride. But no Donald Duck at the wedding. That's where I'm drawing the line. We didn't have, and they actually have a wedding chapel. It was very nice and everything. And then, of course, he goes on to like have this crazy war with Disney. That's a whole other story. I mean, it's crazy that he hasn't tried to literally ban Donald Duck if he was so adamant about banning Donald Duck from his wedding. But maybe that's coming down the line. <sighs> uh. Yeah, that's the DeSantis sound. Gah. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, he was like, I presume, like your standard tea party, still a bad dude, but not quite as insane as he is now. Yeah, I would say like very paint by numbers Mm -hmm. tea party person. If you like listen to interviews he did at the time, he's very bland. He has his talking points and he says them and that's that. But he fundraised like the most money of any of the contenders. And part of that was because he called up his friend who was a pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks and said, like, just asked for money. 
And as a major league baseball player, he had a lot of money and the fellow teammates also had a lot of money and they all just donated to Ron DeSantis. Nice work if you can get it. Right. Like talk about elite networking. Seriously. Yeah. So he won. And as I understand it, he was just like some guy. He was part of the Freedom Caucus, but he left when he was told that they all needed to vote for the same things. Well, I had never run for office before, so it was a big step, but I was concerned about the direction of the country, both in terms of the debt that we were mounting, uh, the out-of-control spending, uh, the big bureaucracy that seemed to work for people in Washington and hurt a lot of the people back home. And so I was a guy that had a record of public service serving in the military, serving in places like Iraq and Guantanamo Bay, and I thought I would be able uh, to offer uh, some, some new ideas and come up here really dedicated into the limited government principles that made the country great. I don't know in thinking about his time in Congress because he's so clearly a behind the scenes player. Like he's built for that. He's built like the evil right hand man, like doing the plotting. But he doesn't do that. He instead tries to be the charismatic evil guy. And it doesn't, it clearly doesn't work. People who have, who knew him when he was young have said that he always wanted to be president, which is a sure sign you are evil. 100%. But like in Congress, I think that he realized that like, oh, this is not the path that I'm going to take to get the presidency. I need to take a different tack. And so then in 2018, he runs for governor, gets the coveted Trump endorsement, but it's a very close election. The margins are really slim. And Andrew Gillum, as exciting as he was as a candidate, the Democratic Party either did not vet him or did not care or was just like, this is the best we could do. But the end result was the same, that Ron DeSantis won. So he's elected governor. He starts in early 2019. And that is when the real craziness begins and we're going to get into that right after this. Thank you for listening to Apple Research brought to you by Discourse Blog. Discourse Blog is a worker-owned leftist politics and culture site. We write about uprisings, the woeful democratic establishment, the conservative death cult, bad journalism, bad bosses, workers, online nonsense, and naturally the discourse. For a limited time, Apple Research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com slash research. Subscribing gives you access to all our posts, and you can hear new episodes of Apple Research a week early with no ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com slash research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Apple Research. Thanks for listening. Okay, we are back. I am here with Sam Schuyler, my brilliant colleague at The Nation. So we know Ron DeSantis now as the ultimate expression of the kind of insanity that the Republican Party has embraced in terms of the COVID stuff, the anti-trans stuff, the woke like obsession stuff. Did he start out that way as the governor or was he evil but more conventional at the beginning? I think he was evil but more conventional. I think he still was just like a Tea Party Republican. He pushed for like the environment in Florida. It's very interesting. There are a lot of conservative conservationists in Florida. And so that was part of his time in office in the early days. Water quality was a big issue. He wasn't really focused on culture war stuff. 
was there anything like particularly heinous that he did that stands out to you or is that all centered around the COVID and post-COVID space? There wasn't all that much time between when he was elected and when COVID hit. And he didn't do all that much. It was nothing explosive or anywhere close to as controversial as all of the legislation that he is doing now. He was bad, but not like this bad. And at the beginning of COVID, I was concentrated on the terrible job that the governor here in New York was Andrew Cuomo was doing. So I wasn't fully like on the DeSantis wavelength. But I feel like at the beginning, he was sort of, you know, a stern COVID guy, like serious lockdowns, like get your vaccines. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was very reasonable what he was saying. You know, if you maintain appropriate social distancing, uh, you're, you're not going to probably infect anyone or get infected. If you're not in a situation where you can avoid the three C's or where you can, um, where you can appropriately social distance, you know, wearing the face covering will help you. And I think it really speaks to the practical politician that he initially, you know, that launched his career. He was just doing what anyone would do in a crisis situation like that, which is too bad because it changed. Why do you think it changed so dramatically? What happened to make him swerve that emphatically into the lane that he's now occupying? I mean, obviously, you know, the Politics around COVID changed a lot. So that's clearly a motivating factor. But why do you think in particular that he went so all the way to the other end and was so determined to be seen as doing that? What was going on there? I'm sure something shifted in the Republican Party that made it very clear that the Trump base was who you needed to pander to if you wanted to continue to have power. But I think like personally him, I can't pretend to know what's going on in his brain, but like he's like the guy who thinks that he knows best. He like takes in all of the information and then he makes an assessment and acts on it. There's this anecdote that he tells that's supposed to be heartwarming where Casey DeSantis comes back from being told that she has breast cancer and Ron DeSantis immediately goes to the computer and looks everything up and eventually tells her like, actually, I think you have a pretty good chance. What I'm reading here is that you will definitely make it through this. It's like, that's not what anyone wants to hear. You don't want someone saying like, I've been doing a lot of research. You, you don't want that. But he truly thinks of himself as someone who, if he takes in enough information and processes it, he will make a decision that is the most rational and the correct choice. He's a technocrat. He is technically savvy and prides himself on being the expert, even though he is not the expert. I am speculating, but I'm pretty sure that there was a point where he realized that, and he says this too, that like COVID didn't really spread outdoors. And I think that he made a really risky decision to go all in and to oppose COVID protections. He made like a cost-benefit analysis and he just decided not to be cautious. And I think that that's a very, like it's putting the people that you govern, their lives are in your hands. And he, I think, made a political decision to risk that. I guess if I could add to your psychoanalytic speculation, and I say this having now watched him on his presidential run and watched him flop so hard, he maybe said to himself, like, I am never going to win these people over, like, with my personality or, like, my campaigning skills and the way that I'm going to win people 
is by doing shit and doing the craziest shit that I can. And if I do that, then that's going to be the thing that puts me over the line with them. Yeah. I think you saw COVID as this opportunity to act in a way that would have a huge national impact. He wanted to be the the doer. And what better way to do than to like, quote unquote, save the state, risking the population of Florida in the process? Those lockdown policies were, were destructive. The mandates violated people's freedoms. It's driven a lot of people into drug and substance abuse, despair and depression. And yet nobody is taking responsibility for doing any of this. In fact, you're now seeing in certain pockets of the country a move to reimpose things like mask mandates. Like we know this didn't work, and yet they're trying to do it again. They won't do it in Florida because we banned any type of mandate, so you're not, you're not permitted to do it. You have a civil right in the state of Florida to breathe clean air without having a piece of cloth forced on your face. I can tell you, when I'm president, we are going to bring a reckoning. That's Fauci, the CDC, NIH, all these organizations. You say he's technically savvy, and one of the things he's becomes very savvy about is figuring out how to use the levers of power that he has as the governor to his advantage. As soon as he was elected, one of the first things that he did was he got his staff to put together a binder of every possible authority he had as a governor in order to advance his agenda. And that's that's literally what he says in an interview that he, quote, wanted to find the levers to pull to advance my agenda. And he did it. It's very creepy, the laser precision that he has been using. And I think that what's happening now is the result of him using that binder. He just takes in all of the information that he can and then acts on it like a robot. And it's interesting that 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 comes from right when he was elected because it shows that it wasn't only COVID that made him have this turn, but that he had this instinct that he was going to use this very specific method to amass power, like from day one. So that when he did find himself in a situation where he wanted to exploit that power, he was very well placed, as you say. And so, I mean, the amount of terrible shit that he has done is kind of unreal when you go through it. Just in like the last two or three years, just to go through this briefly, because if we go through all of them, like we will not be able to, you know, be here for less than like six hours. So there's the don't say gay bill about not being able to teach about queer people in schools, just like the most sort of retrograde bigoted piece of legislation you can have. I think parents throughout this country should be able to send their kids to school without having an agenda shoved down their throat. Even 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that you would go to a second grade classroom and teach a second grader that they can change genders. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, it's totally inappropriate. A six-week abortion ban, which is self-evidently terrible. A law preventing trans kids from getting gender-affirming care, part of his like eternal war on trans people. Um, a bill banning universities from spending their money on diversity initiatives. The ability to carry a concealed weapon without a permit. 
all of this stuff about like not being able to teach about race in schools, this sort of phony war on critical race theory, um, changing the textbooks and the curriculum and trying to make kids in Florida learn that enslaved people actually picked up a lot of fun skills. I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed uh you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. I mean, it's wild that you can just go on and on and on and on. And like, we haven't even gotten to all of them. You know, the stunt he pulled where he basically swindled all of these migrants into like getting on a plane and being shipped off to Martha's Vineyard. It's crazy. What do you think like ties all of those things together and how has it felt to you as a Floridian to witness all of that happening? Yeah, it's felt really bad. My queer friends, my friends who are teachers, my stepmom is a teacher. Everyone has felt it, uh, has been impacted by all of this legislation. Even if it's appealed, just the threat of it is terrifying and it makes people feel like they are trapped in a corner or are going to say the wrong thing, which is ironic considering so much of Ron DeSantis's whole thing is that he wants everyone to exercise personal liberty. And it seems like he is just boxing people in in a very authoritarian way. He he talks a lot about how he wants to fight against the weaponized bureaucracy of the federal government. And he himself is weaponizing the bureaucracy in a very concerted, careful way. The thing that also strikes me about all of these things is how much he clearly sees political advantage in basic human indecency, how much he is banking on people's pleasure in cruelty towards others. Absolutely. Like it feels like his animating sort of principle in terms of his politics at this point. This is where there's this nexus between like what he's doing and sort of his misunderstanding of what people want. I think that there are people who are very satisfied that these things are there happening. But I think a lot of what Trump's base wants is to hear the bluster and maybe every once in a while something real comes of it. But what they really want is the spectacle. He really is doing it, but it's not resonating with people in the way that Trump is. Trump resonated with people, even though he accomplished very little of what he promised that he would do or threatened that he would do. And I think Ron, I can see Ron DeSantis being like, but I'm doing it. Why don't people like me? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And to a certain extent, it feels like he is experiencing what a lot of politicians experience, which is like they are tremendously effective and and sort of monumental figures within a smaller territory. And um, we should we should add that this all made him enormously popular within Florida. And he got reelected overwhelmingly in 2022, which is the thing that made everybody say, oh, he could maybe be the president. But, you know, once you're on the national stage against Trump, then like, why do they want you when they can have the real thing? And also, I think um, it feels like DeSantis not only is terrible at the act of running for president, but also that he has like put all of his chips on this set of issues that has gotten him very far and turned into a national icon and, you know, but more broadly, like, 
people are weirded out by this shit and they're weirded out by a super weird dude talking about all this weird stuff in a weird way. Yeah, with sweat beating on his upper lip. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And like, this is where we can get into the presidential part, because that's where this becomes more entertaining, shall we say, than watching Ron DeSantis like destroy Florida from the ground up. Before we move on to that, I just want to emphasize that this quote-unquote mandate that DeSantis says that he had, it was like a 19-point win, true. But I, I just, I can't emphasize enough that he was running against Charlie Crist. <laughs> like, yes. he wasn't running against anyone. And, and, and the Florida Democratic Party is like an extreme joke. Truly a joke. It is nationally known as a joke. Like, there, there's technical things involved with that that has just like made it a terrible state party. But to run Charlie Crist, <laughs> like, yeah, you're you're giving that one away. Yeah, yeah. That's when you know you got nothing. This is a good point to just ask, and I hope you don't get offended by this as someone from Florida, but it seems like a lot of politicians do nicely in Florida, and then when you take them out of Florida, they're revealed to be super weird freak people who really can't cut it elsewhere. I say that as someone living in New York, which is sort of home to kind of the same disease, which kind of makes sense because New Yorkers and Floridians are always going back and forth. But like Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, now Ron DeSantis, they all seem like weird in the same sort of ways to me in some way or another. What do you think is going on like in the water in Florida that makes people be able to succeed so much in Florida and fail so miserably outside of it. Yeah, because all of them are freaks. I think that like running in Florida, you get a false sense of security. There's just such a long history of redistricting and voter suppression that if you are able to succeed in Florida, you really, (laughs) you you think, uh, and it is not particularly accurate that this can be replicated. It's a very particular weird state. And I think that when you're getting ahead in Florida, that just does not naturally mean that you're going to be legible in other places. I I hate the like Florida is just a hundred percent freak show. Let's cut Florida off from the United States. I really get frustrated with that because it's in a lot of ways a really interesting and really complex state. But you know, Floridians are often weird. <laughs> California weird is a different weird. New York weird is a different weird. Florida weird is a very particular weird. And maybe other weirds translate, but I'm not sure about Florida. Yeah. It's interesting also because it's such a like a wild sort of conglomeration of populations. You have a significant black population, a significant Central American and Puerto Rican population. You have all the insane exiles, all the crazy old Jews. There's so many different kinds of people. And so you would think that a politician who was able to sort of successfully navigate such a complex like political Mm -hmm. terrain, like you would think that they would be sort of more well-trained in like reaching out to the broader country. But I guess, like you say, it just does not work. I think that the people who stick around in Florida all year are a certain type of freak. You know, the people that I grew up with, they're all strange. And I think that like we underestimate how many people populate Florida for only a part of the year. But the people who are like dyed in the wool Floridians, which is not like transplants, which is a huge part of the Florida population. But the people who are generations deep 
Floridians, some of the most incredible people I've met and the most wild people I've met. I, I can see that not translating outside of the state. That's really interesting. I had never contemplated that, but that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> if you're staying in Florida in the height of July, you have already melted your brain a little bit. But like, if you continue to do that, you know, you're a special person. <laughs> as someone who did that, as someone who did that for many years. <laughs> I mean, that is as as good an organizing theory uh, of this situation as any I've ever heard. So I'm going to go with it. <laughs> okay. Awesome. I'm glad to, to be a pundit right now. So have you derived any pleasure watching DeSantis try to like take his uh, Florida charms to the rest of the country and being so resoundingly rejected by voters all over America and being subjected to the most like humiliating treatment by Trump, Meatball Ron, the story about how he ate pudding with his hands, all of the weird shit he does with his face and like his terrible way of interacting with voters has that like been something of a uh, of a cathartic experience for you uh, i derive so much pleasure from every single gap <laughs> and i will continue to derive so much pleasure from it i'm just excited to see him not do well <laughs> it's it's very joyful for me to to see this happen are there any particular moments that you've enjoyed the most on the campaign trail probably when he was at the iowa state fair uh, a plane flew over that read be likable ron <laughs> That's, that's tough for him to do. It's very tough. And it's just such a, like, you know that that just, like, in public, with like, you know, these insults don't mean anything to me. But you know that that, like... <laughs> you can see the failure in his eyes. You know, like, when Melania Trump tweeted, like, about the dolphin, like, what is, <laughs> what is she thinking? What is she thinking? You don't have to do that about Ron DeSantis. It's very clear what he's thinking. He's thinking, like, get me the hell out of this. Yeah, yeah. He is not built for it, which is why it like he must know that he is not cut out for the spotlight. If he wants power so much, there are routes where you have just as much power and you don't humiliate yourself. I think my favorite moment from the campaign trail so far was when he was like talking to a little girl and he was like, what are you drinking there? And she said, oh, an icy. And he said, that's a lot of sugar. <laughs> like, like, what is wrong with you, man? Oh, what is that? Icy? Yeah, that's probably a lot of sugar, huh? Good to see you. Just be like, oh, like, I love Icy's. Who doesn't love an Icy? Okay, and then move on. But he yeah. is, like, his mind-inputted interaction with child and yes. must start conversation, must say something, and that was what came out. It seems obvious that Ron DeSantis is not going to be the Republican nominee in 2024. And I mean, it seems to me like he's also sort of destroyed his chances of ever becoming president, or at least for a long while, because by now setting himself up as an anti-Trump figure. And not even a good anti-Trump figure. Like he hasn't even come out swinging. He will only say some things that allude to Trump, but he doesn't like actually say it with his chest. So like, what's going to happen? Do you have any thoughts about like what the future holds for him? Or do you think that the failure of the campaign is sort of devastating enough to have permanently tarnished his political future? Where do you think this is headed? I think he's going to run again. 
I really don't think that he can stop at this point. And I think he truly believes that he is meant to be the president of the United States. I can see him just like a robot learning all of the things that went wrong and trying to correct them. I don't know if that's going to be successful. But once again, I will eat crow, but I, I predict that he will run again. I don't know whether to like weep at the thought of having to experience all of that again or to sort of like rub my hands <laughs> at whatever like turbocharged terribleness we're going to get from him purely in terms of interacting with other members of the same species <laughs> as him, which clearly is his biggest challenge that he's ever had to face in his life. That part might be fun to watch again. Yeah. And you can't correct that. It's something that is innate. It's like a charisma and a passion you can't fix into existence. He will sure try, I'm sure. Oh, my God. Well, we will find out, all of us together, and whatever happens, we know that Ron DeSantis started terrible, stayed terrible, and will remain terrible long into the future, no matter what. Sam, thank you so much. I'm so happy to have done this with you. Thank you so much for having me on. As painful as it is to talk about a really, truly terrible person, I feel like it is cathartic to discuss and process what is happening right now. That's what we're here for, to help everyone get through the horror together. <laughs> thank you for listening to Oppo Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. Our producer is Alex Chan. Our editor and art director is Sam Grosso. And I'm your host, Jack Merkinson. New episodes of Oppo Research drop Fridays, and you can listen to every episode at discourseblog.com, on the Substack app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to listen to new episodes early? If you subscribe to Discourse Blog at discourseblog.com slash subscribe, you can hear new episodes a week before everyone else. Plus, get access to everything on the site. One more time, that's discourseblog.com slash subscribe. Bye!